An animal criminal, a poetic lawyer, and a beloved children's author all walk into a radio studio. That's this week on Death of the Reader as we continue our journey into Anna Catherine Green's House in the Mist. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds, and it's time, Herds, for something very, very silly. You know, I thought this was going to be hard. I thought this was going to be a, a challenge to overcome, a puzzle to brag about solving. But in the end, it was just a big farce, and it was fantastic. It was amazing. <laughs> so what we are covering today, we're covering two stories as part of one book, mm. House in the Mist, which contains The House in the Mist, Ruby and the Cauldron, and The Hermit of Blank Street. Which we're and not doing yet. Today we're covering The Ruby and the Cauldron, and yes. chapter two of The House in the Mist. So technically we're doing one and one quarter of a, of, of a story. I suppose so. But we're here to talk about the Ruby and the Cauldron first. We are. I insist that we spend at least 10 minutes talking about this. I will gladly. It's so much fun. It's one of those mystery stories which, because I feel like one of the big discussions that we're going to have on this show is between, you know, stories that are these big drama fests and they're all about the character and the progression and these plots and da 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 da. And then there's going to be the other side, which is all about the puzzle and the game and solving things. This story doesn't really do either of them like particularly well. It's just a fun time. Yeah. It's just exciting to watch the detective run around interrogating people um, and watch his one and only skill be completely wasted. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I very explicitly wanted to do this story because it kind of gives you a window into my early murder mm. mystery experience, Yeah, right? When we were first getting into murder mystery stories, I sat down and I found a bunch of short stories to try, like, brush up on, you know, how Mm. closed circles works and how locked rooms work and how all of these logic puzzles work. Mm. And a lot of them were these really goofy, light-hearted, offbeat things like this. Mm. A lot of them weren't even necessarily murders, but they still kind of showed you the same verbal tricks that let them get away with these stupid games. Yeah, yeah. Sure, which is interesting, and that we're we're supposed to be a murder mystery world tour, but we do enjoy crime that does not involve murder. Looking at these stories and how they've influenced other stories around them, the Mm. way that the authors of actual big crime murder mysteries Mm. use these as palate cleansers, like that's what a lot of these short stories are. That's why a lot of them are so iconic, because what had happened is a lot of these authors would get on this roll of writing like big, long stretches of complicated stories Mm. and then just go like, I've I've run out of puzzles. We spoke with Simon Brett a few weeks ago, and he was saying that, you know, a lot of the puzzles have all been done. Mm -hmm. And this was a way a lot of the authors back in the day reset themselves before they went back into the grind of making these complex stories. And Anna Catherine Green is just one example of that. It's a very simple, straightforward story. And it's, it's almost like a, like a fairy tale or like a very simple play. Um, there is no real villain. There is no antagonist. It's just, we got to find this Ruby and that's, that's it. That's the entire story. I really, I really like the way that we're introduced to our detective. Jennings is introduced to us as being, you know, clever and discreet, unlike his compatriots who are clever or discreet, but not both. It's like Mm. a logic puzzle, essentially, for us to to puzzle through in the opening. I mean, Um, I think that sets the tone really well because it's it's a very goofy line. It is. He's like, I can't pick Hicks. I can't pick Henderson. It it immediately lets you know what you're getting in for. It's fantastic. Um, I'm I'm getting I'm gaining an appreciation for. 
uh, Kathleen Green's writing, I think, by reading through this this little story about the ruby in the cauldron, which is a very misleading title because one of those objects is not actually seen until until the very end, and the other is only in it for about three sentences of of you know of dialogue and narration. Well, if, I mean, at least the story revolves around the ruby. The cauldron is just an look, item that is brought in and then exit stage left. I'm just saying it'd be like calling it the one blues brother and the penguin. Right. Um, and then that's just the movie. I'm just saying, I feel like that would make as much sense. Yeah, I, I almost get the feeling that there was a story coming out at around the same time called The Ruby, and yeah. Anna Catherine Green was just like, ah, damn it, I was going to use that one. <laughs> Throw it out. Rewrite the script. But no, throw a cauldron in, rule set. Of course, you did mention earlier, Herds, the uh, our detective... Jennings? Jennings. I'm sticking with it. The big I'm sticking J. with it as well. Big J man. That's I've, his name I'm now. Really, I'm pretty sure he's only ever referred to as Jennings, but I'm really second guessing myself. It doesn't matter at this point. We've committed. We've committed to this man. Yeah. Because Jennings, J man, the big J. The big J. J sizzle. But the big J, his one ability, which is given to you right out the gate, mm-hmm. is that he's always judging people's countenance, how yes. they carry themselves. He's, he's, a judgy, he's a judgy Jennings. He's a judgy Jennings. There you go. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, and yeah, the one thing that he's good at is reading faces, specifically human faces, because that's, you know, all he can do because he's an amateur detective, clearly. Um, but it turns out that he needed to be reading the horse's face the entire time. Yeah, it absolutely invalidates his seemingly yes. only skill. I mean, it invalidates the entire investigation. There's the thing. We have a character we've never heard of, Mr. Spencer, come in at the last second after the big, like, detective, you know, Rube Goldberg machine. And he puts it all together. And there's the, that's your big climax, right? The ruby was in the cauldron the entire time. Um, but it's completely subverted. And then it's just a horse. <laughs> Yep. And that's the fun part. That complete subversion of expectations. And I mean, that's what all comedy is built on. And Anna Catherine Green clearly knows what she's doing in that regard, which I, which I like a lot. Um, yeah. I mean, it's also kind of nice that we have a murder mystery where, or a, a mystery, I should say. A story? A, a story, a I guess. Story. We have a story where everything just turns out okay. No one goes to the gallows. No one kills themselves. You don't no think one... that horse is getting, getting no. put down? No. It's, they, they laugh too hard at that horse. They could never do anything awful to it. It doesn't know any better. <laughs> I am just saying I'm campaigning rights for that poor horse. It didn't, it didn't know. It didn't know the value of a ruby. How does a horse know? Now, <sighs> the, the question I have for you, <laughs> yes. Herds, is do you think it would have been possible Uh-huh. To predict that it was the horse. No, get out. I don't believe you. If you say you did, I don't care. I did not. Yeah, sure. Now you say you didn't. I did not. However, I will contend to you. I think Uh it's possible. No, how? What clues are there? Because there was a horse nearby. No, because they spend the entire introduction (laughs) of the story complaining about traffic. No, that's not good reasoning. It's like the opposite of good reasoning. It's, it's it's not good reasoning, but it is foreshadowing. It's, I guess it is. I guess it is. <laughs> Technically, foreshadowing is the best kind of foreshadowing after all. We're also told <sighs> when Harrison's first giving his account of the tale that there is nobody nearby, mm-hmm. and unless it was one of the ladies that pickpocketed it, provided the account of the incident was correct, it meant that the only creatures living that were nearby enough to have done anything sure. was the horse mm. and John Dean. My my theory that I had running with me that I thought was going to be like the solution oh. uh, was was that Harrison was going to be the one behind it, but that he yeah. like asked one of the ladies, or maybe it wasn't even that he asked, but he like implied like if only someone could find that ruby, I'd love mm. them forever. 
you know, and then and then Miss Glover, who's you know in love with him, which I turns see. out to be true. So I, I got that at least. But like, you should be so proud of yourself. I should be. I am proud of myself. But like. I thought that there was going to be something there where Harrison was like, what if you got that ruby? And then he found out about it. He's trying to cover up. Because when uh, when Jennings, BJ, goes to like read his face, he says, ah, I am certain that he was not hesitant to turn out his pockets. He doesn't say there was no guilt on Harrison's face. He just says he didn't want, he was okay with turning out his pockets. I'm just saying. It's clues like this that keep me on the ball. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think you're necessarily wrong. Maybe Harrison did say that and the horse was just like, what? Okay. <laughs> Harrison told the horse to pick up the, the ruby? Yeah, I mean, is that what that's why he didn't want to turn out oh his my. pockets. No, he did, he though. had his horse translation guide No, no, in but his he, did, he did want to turn out his pockets. That was, that was the clue that we got. And so I'm basing all my reasoning off that one I line, see. as one should, when right. solving a murder mystery. Of course. Yeah, you understand. You see now, it was Harrison the entire time. But I think you missed the point, is that these are like old, multi-breasted pockets. <laughs> yes. Uh, jackets with, it would with take many pockets. Time. And if he turned out three pockets, he still has like eighteen left in the back. That's why you got to be thorough. Exactly. That's why. That's why he couldn't like he couldn't just do it there and then. That'd be rude. He'd be taking out his silverware and there's always little bits of dust and stuff falling everywhere. I'm just saying. I mean, that's also why his these detective watch. stories never actually feature us. You know, really interrogating people no. because it would take too long to turn that's out why, all of these pockets. It's it's so much more dramatic just to have the criminal say, "I did it," and then they reach into their one pocket and pull out the thing. You it's know. really, I, I feel as though fashion brands these days have been coerced into having fewer pockets on yes. our clothing just so it's easier for the police to turn them out when That's needed. That's absolutely true. I guarantee there is a law somewhere in some country that says you must have no more than, you know, five pockets. It's breaking the law to have that many pockets because that is just too ma- too much effort. Too much effort to search. Yeah, I mean, it's if highly they, illegal. If they if they pick you up by the ankles and shake you out, everything should come yeah, out. That's how it works in the cartoons. You can't have a pocket that like falls into another pocket. That's no. just cheating, dude. That's just too many pockets. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you need that many pockets? I'm just saying, just get one big pocket. Much easier. I see this discussion has clearly gone absolutely off the rails. That's how it should but be. That, yeah, that's how it should be. That's for this how story. it should be. I, that's I, what this story is. It's off the rails. It completely comes out of left field. It's fantastic. Yeah, I, I really hope that those of you who read along with this story thoroughly enjoyed it. Like, it's obviously old school humor. Like, yeah. it's not a book you're going to be absolutely howling about, but it is silly and it's fun silly. Yeah. Either way, that has been Ruby <laughs> in the Cauldron. What's that? Is that what that was? I... I mean, it's been the ruby. The ruby and the, the endless ruby, pockets? I guess. The many pockets? I would have called this story the ruby and the horse, but that would have given things away horse. far too easily. What about ruby and Jennings or ruby and the, the manor or the party? The ruby at the party? I'm just saying. There was a better, there was a better title in there somewhere. Jennings, ruby, rube, Goldberg machine? That's the one. That's, That's it. the one. Trademark that quick. <laughs> Or someone steals it. Don't you steal that. <laughs> Coming up next on the show, Heard spoke with Anna Feinberg, author of the much-beloved children's series Tashi. And then later on in the show, we'll be talking chapter two of The House in the Mist. This is Death of the Reader. Stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader on 2SCR. This is Flex and Hertz having a chat with children's book author and recently made member of the Order of Australia. I don't know how much you can support this. Anna Feinberg, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Hertz. Nice <laughs> to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on. 
Uh, before we uh, continue, I should mention that I am a longtime fan of the Tashi series. Uh, my uh, my old babysitter used to come around with a book each week and read them to me when I was a young lad. Uh, the first one that oh. I read was Tashi and the Demons, and moving from book to book, uh, uh, seeing how Tashi uh, defeated each of his nemeses with Brain over Brawn was always very exciting. Mm. Oh, that's lovely to know. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I think... Um, the demons is one of the one of the scarier ones, and I have had children say to me that they, that's their favourite, but they're mm. only allowed to read it in the daytime. <laughs> it, it gave me nightmares as a child, so yeah. Oh dear, <laughs> it's okay though. I am um, I'm well equipped now to deal with any demons if they should come upon me. <laughs> well, you know the strategies now. You see, I do, I do. To deal gonna, with them, it's going to outsmart them, of course, like Tashi. Yeah. Yes, because really they're very silly. <laughs> That's the thing to know. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, currently, we're covering House in the Mist by Anna Catherine Green. Uh, in this story, there are some uh, fairy tale like elements in the story. Uh, not exactly demons, but uh, I-, I was curious. How have you been inspired by fairy tales in your own writing? Look, I think a lot of the the Tashi um, stories, and and really many stories for children, particularly. Uh, you know, uh, come from the old fairy tales and the myths yeah. and the legends, and um, you know there are these larger than life archetypal figures that 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 heroes have to battle with. Um, and so I, you know, they're they're there and they're there in our own lives too. Um, mm. So I I I think particularly you know with children, people are often nervous about um, figures that might might terrify them or that might you know, have a deleterious effect that way, but but they exist, you know, and so the best way I think is not denying um, mm. that these things exist, but but actually, you know, helping supply children with with hope and possibilities and yeah. and courage and strategies, you know, to deal with some of the the more negative things in life. And every story has a problem. I mean, you cannot yeah. have a story without a problem, can you? So uh, why not make it as dramatic as possible? <laughs> are there um, are there any particular fairy tales or stories from from other cultures? I know that the the Baba Yaga, you know, one of the mm. creatures that Tashi has to deal with is, is from Slavic folklore. Uh, are there any particular yes. stories that excite you? Is it the Baba Yaga? Or is there another that you might draw upon? Yes. Oh well, and then you know, um, uh, stories like uh, the Pied Piper. That mm. was most definitely. Um, an inspiration for the magic flute where there's a, um, a, a locust plague about to descend on Tashi's lands uh, and, um, or the lands of the village. And, and uh, uh, you know, they're all aghast and what we'll do and, and uh, you know, it'll all be gone. And then a, a stranger appears uh, mm-hmm. who has this magic flute and he can, he can make them disappear with a single note. Um, he's promised to... Um, they have to promise that they will give him a bag of gold for his work, mm. and um, of course that's the wicked baron. And does he, does he finally pay? You know, as he promised. No, that 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 whole kind of moral dilemma is explored. I mean, of course it's it's um, exaggerated punishment, and not mm. even for the people who made the decision. But um, it is explored about whether whether there was you could see the Pied Piper's point of view. Um, yeah to some degree and uh, you know yes so we can extract a lot of those those moral dilemmas from from those old fairy tales and myths 
I mean, as you say, there are some quite uh, wicked characters like, like the Baron or the Demons. Um, uh, you're, you're known for writing tales for children, but you also incorporate these terrifying creatures into them. Uh, how do you normally go about in, inserting these horror elements into, into children's tales? I feel like that would be somewhat difficult to balance. Um, well, you know, there, there's also quite a bit of horror in real life, isn't there? I yeah. mean, there's also the warlord um, who steals children and, you know, uses them as slaves. And, you know, look, Tashi, he's, he's somebody in his, in his village that is absolutely beset with these sorts of horrors. Um, but I think, I think if, you, if you give um, children the no, enough confidence to know that he is going to be able to deal with it, um, even though, you know, there's risk and danger and so on, um, but if you equip your hero with enough now and courage and wits, then they will feel all the way through, you know, it's as if you're holding their hand through these dangers. And um, there's something very thrilling about feeling comfortable and quietly confident and yet scared. Uh, I have to ask, Anna, did you ever think you'd be uh, uh, in, you know, in this studio telling us about your induction Um, into this order by the Queen of of Britain? Or (laughs) was that something that was on your agenda? Yes, but such a good Republican as me. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. But, um... No, I didn't. I didn't. I, I, I think it's wonderful, but um, I must say it's very growing up. It just seems it's still it's still a bit hard to believe, okay. you know. Um, but um, it's a lovely thing because mm. um, I yeah, I feel it's a very shared award. Yes, with, of course. You know, not only the Barbara and 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 Kim, but um, but with children's literature, you know, in general, mm. it's a lovely thing for children's literature to be recognised. Yeah, that, with that sort of stature, you know, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, I saw, um, I saw that Hugh Jackman was on the list as well. So having, you know, your lovely little children's books put on the same pedestal as, as Hugh Jackman, uh, well, world renowned Hearthrob. Interesting. Yeah, mm. I saw that too, and um, <laughs> and I thought, oh, they haven't told me about the ceremony yet, but I wonder if he'll be there because mm. I'll be there. You could meet him. Did you get to meet him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I suppose, uh, what advice would you give to aspiring authors in the field on on telling compelling stories? Oh well, we've got about an hour. No, I'll I'll, um, <laughs> I'll edit myself as well. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would uh, look, mostly. I would say read and read and read. Mm. Um, you know, it, it, I think reading and reading widely. It helps you discover what you like, really, which helps you really, I suppose, know yourself as a person too, um, and and uh, certainly knows helps you know what um, you want to write about. Generally, what you want to read about is what you want to write about, you know, um, and so it, it it also while you're reading, you know, it's so effortless, but you're learning so much. Mm. Not only about language and, you know, you're letting yourself fall under that spell of the images being created. You know, your mind is being fed all the time by possibilities, things you would never have dreamt of, you know, lives you can be living while you're reading. Um, And it's amazing how you unconsciously absorb structure of story and how to... um, 
how to create suspense and, you know, um, it, it's a lovely unconscious effortless uh, thing to do. Mm. But, um, you know, learning that you, and that you don't really have to be alone in your own mind, that other people feel and think things just like you, um, but and even though they might have very different lives, um, you're all linked, you know, we're inherently very much the same in our inner worlds and um, it gives you confidence then to write about those things, I think. So reading a lot and then and then making notes about what you observe. You know, it's like sort of turning on a little switch in yourself and noticing, being alert to what you are interested in, you know, helping your curiosity build. Um, and when you do hear an interesting conversation or you have a, a fascinating dream or something happens that makes you feel a lot, just make a note of it. Get a notebook and write it down. Um, it doesn't have to be a story then, but later on it might become a story. And it helps you to make that transition. It's not easy of what you feel and think and actually putting it on the paper. And the more you practice that and the more you do it, um, the easier it becomes. So you're sort of honouring your experience and your imagination by doing that too. And it just feeds itself that way. But people often ask, children often ask me, are you going to keep writing, you know, when they hear how old I am? Oh. And I say, yes. I say it most defiantly. <laughs> keep writing even when you're lying in the bed. hundred. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine it. Alrighty. <laughs> well, uh, you're listening to Death of the Reader. I'm Hurt, so I'd like to say uh, another big thank you to Anna Feinberg, uh, author of the much-beloved Tashi stories, for being on the show today. Thank you, Anna. Oh, thank you, Hurt. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER. We are Flex and Herds, and we've just given you the Rupee Cauldron. But now it's time to return to the titular story of this compendium, The House in the Mist. The House in the Mist. What a poetic title for a poetic story. We're dealing with We're dealing with chapter two right now, which according to the version I have is nine pages long. Uh, I think I had 10 pages, but either way, it's very short. Very short. Very little happens. Many characters do not do anything during this time, despite the fact that we have 11 of them. We follow our character, the same hero as last time. Hugh Austin. Hugh Austin, and through his adventures, he listens against the wainscoting, which is a little part of the wall that looks different to the rest of it. Yes. I do want to say to you, Herds, (laughs) Yeah, if I was being strict about trying to get you, like, the the most story before we, you know, got into the solutions part, I would have ended it halfway through chapter three. What? Why didn't you? Are you trying to make things difficult for me? No, I'm trying to make things easy for the audience so that they don't have to remember half of a page when our pages on the (sighs) versions we're reading across the same table are different. It's, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, I I really enjoyed this chapter, for as short as it was. Mm. I like that you've picked a novel that I can engage with and, like, coming again to that discussion of, you know, uh, puzzle versus uh, substance, I would say, 
we're leaning more towards the substance side of things, which I appreciate. Mm. You could very easily look at a murder mystery as, oh, that's like each character is a knife and is the knife able to kill? Yes, they're the murderer done. But I like that this chapter, as short as it is, focuses just on the main character and how he's feeling and like how he wants to he wants to pursue this this Eunice woman and her like own morality how strong she feels about being like a good person which is crazy in this den of villains I will apologize slightly to Eunice for slightly. saying that she might be a horrible murderer I, I might be wrong which is you know disappointing <laughs> for me I was hoping I did say it would either be a gun or a baby so I'll take I'll take like point one of a point. Unfortunately, I didn't really expand upon that other part, but hey, that's fine. There's always next time. Imagine the perspective of this baby. Let's let's just think about it for a second. You're swaddled up in cloth, so you mm. can't see anything, and then suddenly you're thrown into light. There's all these people you've never seen before. There's sounds and people are shouting and everyone's awful. And your mother just says, I have sinned. Like, what is happening there? I hope that baby doesn't remember any of this, because it's going to be Scar for life. I just... <laughs> I mean, do you even think we're going to get closure on this? Um, I mean, judging by the way that we're progressing, we're already halfway through the novel, and we have more questions than answers. Mm. I mean, the thing that I am more interested in is the fact that because she has extricated herself by, you know, saying, I am not a terrible human being, both of our characters are outside of the room with all the awful people in it, mm. so if anything goes horribly wrong... They're not going to be a part of that. Whether they, you know, link up afterwards or whatever, whatever's going to happen there. I think that this gives us the perfect precedent for something awful to happen to all those villainous characters inside the room. Because any one of them getting away with all the money is just not okay. At this point, I am really hoping that the next chapter we open on them just you know, outside, and they're just like, oh, hey, how's it going? And then the doors all open, and everyone inside is dead with no explanation. I hope the house gets set on fire. That's really? what I want. I want them to be like, yo, what's happening? We should, like, you know, hang out here. Maybe we should go find a horse. And there's, like, the sound of a match being mm. struck, and then everything goes on fire. That'd be great. It would be great. Yeah. I want to talk about Smeed. Why? Why Smeed? Smeed is this character who... Mr. Schmee. He was definitely like the least characterized character of chapter one. I guess so. He's but, at least like cartoonish, yeah, I suppose. But now that we've gotten to chapter two, he's been given, you know, the musical way that he reads uh, and also the way he drifts between the first person of the will and the third person of him reading it to the others. Mm. It's He's a very animated character very relative animated. to anyone else. And he also, he enjoys his job. He yes. enjoys the misery that he causes in drawing everything out to the nth degree, it's, which is fantastic. It's so weird because like part of me looks at him and I'm like, he is clearly the villain in this pile of villains because he's he's not, like, well, I, I think he's the villain for the same reasons you thought Eunice was. Yeah. Where she's given enough characterization to make her suspicion, mm. but not enough to sell her as the villain. Well, he's certainly the orchestrator of this. I mm. think that really, yeah. You think so you don't think that Anthony Westenhall has anything <sighs> to do with this? If this is because he shows up at the end, is like oh, I have been puppeteering this with the shadows the entire time. I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> Get out. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that um, the most obvious thing that's going on here is that Smeed is like. I'm I'm going down. I'm taking you all with me, or, or, or he locks the door on them, or something like that. In fairy tale stories, which this kind of reminds me of in terms of the way that the characters portrayed, as you say, very animated. I could imagine this being a cartoon. Um, 
Usually the villains get their comeuppance and I would not be surprised in the plan, whether it's Smeed's or, or Austin's or whoever's it is that, that like, if anyone, if any man has, or, or woman has some kind of sin that they want to admit, they should leave this place and not get all of the thousands of dollars or the hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's a test. Mm. That's to see if there's anyone who is good enough to actually leave the damn house before something bad happens. Right. So you think that everyone that's stuck in here is going to have something bad happen to yes. them because they didn't this, leave? This is when the demons come out and are like, you have the sin of greed. We will now take you down to hell. That's going to happen. It's going to happen. That's why, right. that's why the mist is here, because there are misty demons out there. All right. Oh, all right. I can't wait for it. I. This sounds... F- Absolutely fabulous. This story yes. sounds amazing. I'm so glad that Dude. you're you're reading this story ahead of me, Hood, so that we can Dude. I'm just saying, if that's what happens, I'm I'm sold. It'll be the best story. And if it's not, I'm writing that story. I'm writing the story about a house in the mist where all the evil people go and they're like, Are you a good person? They're like, Yes, absolutely. And then they get killed by demons. Mm. That's mm. what happens. But um yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess we'll see what happens. Is it real or is it magic? It's probably not magic. <laughs> not in this context. Yeah. No. I definitely want to talk about the differences between our expectations and how the story actually turns out next week. So that's sure. what you can look forward to. Sounds good. I've had lots of fun reading these stories. Ruby in the Cauldron is definitely still my favorite out of the two so far. You know, mm. maybe the next couple of chapters will salvage my opinion mm. of uh of the house in the mist. Oh my goodness! Well, you've I mean, you've read the whole thing. So I have. You should, I have. You should know by now whether you like it. Or not. I'm I'm speaking with the pretense of how I felt when I was at these points, mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. because I don't want to lead you too much. I mean, you're you're always leading me around. I don't know what's happening anymore, but that's true. It's true. But, but. either way, next next week we will be back with the Hermit of Blank Street and chapters three and four of the House in the Mist. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to whatever ends up happening. It's going to be crazy. (laughs) Thank you to Paul Meter for the music that's sending us out here. We will see you next time. 